ones, I want to address Roman Catholicism. This is the 500th anniversary of what is known as the Protestant Reformation. And uh, Reformation, it's a little bit of an unfortunate term because at the time when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door there in Wittenberg, he was not wanting to destroy the Catholic Church. He was wanting to reform it. Um, but uh, it, 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 was, it was not to be. But Luther, by God's grace, did start uh, a fire there, and it continues to this day by the mercies of God. The Roman Catholic Church, I hold, is the largest organized theological cult on the planet. Yes. Largest organized theological cult on the planet. It is not a sociological cult. It is not a Jim Jones drink the Kool-Aid kind of a cult. I'm not talking about that kind of cult. I'm not talking about Jim Jones or, you know, uh, heavens, what is that, the pill, the guys that put the, their tennis shoes on a few years ago and drank something, killed themselves, their Nikes, whatever that was back in the 90s. Not that kind of a cult. But it is a theological cult because it compromises and denies some of the fundamental tenets of historical Christianity. So the title of this session is Doctrine, Deliverance, or destruction. If you have your copy of God's Word, this will be our jumping off text into a more um, topical message. But I do want us to begin with this, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. The Apostle Paul is writing to the young pastor, Timothy. And again, at this time, when Paul was writing to Timothy, Timothy was in his early to mid-30s. So not as young as we often imagine him to be, but nonetheless, he was still considered to be a young pastor. Paul writes in verse 13, he says, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Paul says, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. The public reading of Scripture was the central part of synagogue worship. You see this in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus walked into the synagogue. Remember that? And he publicly read from Scripture. He read from Isaiah chapter 61. And the pattern there in the synagogue was to stand and read from the Scriptures. And then the rabbi would sit down and then teach those Scriptures, expound upon those Scriptures. And that's what we see Jesus doing in Luke 60, in a, excuse me, Luke chapter 4 when he read from Isaiah 61. And so the early church adopted this. They continued this practice of the public reading of Scripture and teaching upon it. Not only the Old Testament, but also after the advent of the church, the birth of the church, apostolic teaching. Apostolic teaching and doctrine. This is what Christ did. Early church did this as well. And notice Paul says... Give attention to the public reading of Scripture to exhortation and teaching. This word exhortation, it is a challenge. It is a challenge to obey what is being taught. We are not to be hearers only of the word, as James says in James 1.22. We are not to be hearers only, but we are to be doers of the word. It does us no good to hear sound doctrine, hear sound teaching, if we don't obey it, if we don't live it out. 
So give attention to the exhortation. Obey what you are hearing from God's word. We are to be, obey God's word, what we hear from it as it is being expounded upon by a preacher and what we read from it in our own private times of devotion. And to teaching, doctrine. Paul says, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. This laying on of hands, this was not some mystical experience. This was just a public confirmation that God had a call on Timothy's life. So nothing mystical about that. They were just affirming the call that God had on his life. And notice in verse 15, Paul says, Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them. Now, this word absorbed, you notice it's italicized. It should be italicized in your Bible. And when you see that, a, a word that is italicized, it means that it's not actually in the Greek. It's not in the original manuscripts. This literally says, be in them. But the sense is being absorbed. But it literally says, be in them. Be submerged in them. Our lives are to be submerged with the reading of Scripture, with exhortation to obey it, with sound doctrine. We are to be absorbed in these things, submerged in these things. There is nothing more important than sound doctrine and theology, dear ones. There is nothing more important than that. If we are not reading and studying and obeying the Word of God, then nothing else matters. Be absorbed in these things. Everything that we do, every decision we make, every, every position that we come to, no matter what issue it is, we are to come to these positions through a right understanding of God's Word. God's Word is to guide everything in our lives. Everything that we believe, everything that we do, everything that we say, we should filter it through the Word of God. Be absorbed in these things. Don't just be a hearer only. Be a doer of the Word of God. Be, let, let the Word of God saturate every facet of your life so that your progress will be evident to all. Dear ones, if your life is absorbed in the Word of God, if the Word of God is saturating your heart and your mind, you shouldn't have to wear a Christian t-shirt to let other people know you're a Christian. Now, I'm not against Christian t-shirts in and of themselves, but if that's the only way that somebody knows you're a Christian is by the T-shirt you're wearing, something's wrong. Okay? If we are growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that growth will be evident to other people. We shouldn't have to advertise it. Okay? I'm not saying it's wrong with wearing a Christian T-shirt, as long as it's a good one. But, but if that's the only way people know you're a Christian, then something's, something's not right. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Pay close attention. It, it literally says, take heed to yourself and to your teaching. Remember, Paul is writing this to a pastor. He is writing this to a man in a position of spiritual leadership and authority. Even Timothy had to pay close attention to himself, not to get lackadaisical. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching, to your doctrine. Why? Why is this so important? Take heed, Paul says, to yourself. Make sure your life measures up with your doctrine. Pay close attention. Take heed to these things. Persevere in these things. As Costi said, I believe earlier, one of the marks of genuine conversion is that a genuine Christian will persevere to the end. 
A genuine Christian will persevere to the end. We don't try to maintain our salvation. We don't work for our salvation. We don't, we don't do these things to earn God's favor. But once God's favor has been granted through faith and repentance in Christ, then that genuine believer will persevere to the end. We will stumble here and there, but we will persevere to the end. That is the mark of saving faith. Perseverance. Perseverance. We often hear about perseverance of the saints. I prefer to refer to it as perseverance of the Savior. God saves us and he keeps us. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation, both for yourself and for those who hear you. How important is teaching? How important is doctrine? Well, it's a salvation issue. You will ensure salvation not only for yourself, but also for those who hear you. Doctrine, deliverance, or destruction. Now, this word doctrine, teaching, didaskalia, it means literally that, doctrine. It is a body of teaching that is authoritative. A body of teaching that is authoritative. And it is vitally, vitally important. Sound doctrine delivers, false doctrine destroys. Salvation is fundamentally a work of deliverance. It's a work of deliverance. Psalm chapter 144 verse 2 says, The Lord is my deliverer. From what does he deliver us? He delivers us from sin. He delivers us from death and eternal destruction. Romans six seventeen through 18 speaks of being obedient to doctrine and being freed from sin, delivered from sin. So doctrine delivers. Salvation is fundamentally a work of deliverance. Sound doctrine delivers. False doctrine destroys. There is nothing more important than doctrine. Now, there's, you might have heard people say something like this. Well, well, I don't need doctrine. I don't need theology. I just, I just love Jesus. But I don't need, don't, don't talk to me about doctrine. Don't talk to me about theology. That, that's not important. That, that doctrine divides. That's, that's just for the theologians. And I don't, I don't need that stuff. I just, I just love Jesus. Dear friends, all these people that proclaim to love Jesus and yet they have this palpable disdain for doctrine and theology, I would submit to you that they do not love Christ nearly as much as they profess to love him. Philippians chapter 1 verse 9, Paul says this, In this I pray that your love would abound still more and more in what? Knowledge and discernment. The Bible never separates knowledge of God and love for God. Never. It always combines these things. So all these people running around professing how much they love Jesus, but they don't like doctrine, they don't like theology, then they do not love Christ the way they profess to love him. When you love someone, you want to get to know that person, right? You want to spend time with that person. Men, when you fell in love with a woman who is now your wife, you wanted to know her, you studied her. How does she like her coffee? What does she like to do? Where does she like to eat? You studied her. And the more you studied her, the more in love you fell with her. And it should be the same way in our relationship with Christ. If we truly love Christ, we're going to want to get to know him. How do we get to know him? By knowing him in his word. And it is sound doctrine. It is right theology that deepens our knowledge of God. And when our knowledge of God is deepened, that enables our love for God to be deepened. 
So don't ever let anybody tell you that doctrine and theology are not important. They are important. Sound doctrine delivers. False doctrine destroys. Now, I want to say this. It is possible for one to have sound doctrine and live an ungodly life. That is possible. To have a head full of sound doctrine and yet live an ungodly life. And we see this, don't we? Unfortunately, we've seen it with some of the big-name pastors and big-name theologians. Head full of sound doctrine, but their lives don't measure up. It's possible to have sound doctrine in your head and live an ungodly life. We see this in the scriptures. We see it with Luke chapter 16. Remember the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man died. He had a head full of knowledge because when he died, he woke up in the lake of fire. He had this ability to see across a great chasm. And he said, Father Abraham. This was not some atheist. This was not a member of the ACLU. This was a religious man. He recognized Abraham, called him by name, gave him a title of respect. Father Abraham, this was a religious man. What's he doing in hell? What's he doing in the lake of fire? Had a head full of knowledge, but that knowledge had not penetrated his heart. So I'm a big proponent of having sound doctrine, but make sure that head knowledge has penetrated your heart. You can have sound doctrine, live an ungodly life, but here's what is not possible. It is not possible to live a godly life with unsound doctrine. Okay? You cannot live a life that is pleasing to God and have unsound doctrine. Have bad doctrine. Vitally important. Let's look at some of the deadly dangers of unsound doctrine. Second Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and it leads to the ruin of hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed Accurately handling the word of truth, rightly dividing the word of truth, or thotameo, we are to be cutting it straight with God's word. That's what it means to accurately handle God's word, to cut it straight with God's word. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. That worldly empty chatter, that is not just chit chat, that's false doctrine, bad teaching. It leads to further ungodliness. Their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. The dangers of unsound doctrine, it leads to the ruin of hearers. Bad doctrine is a danger both to unbelievers, because if you present a false gospel and someone responds to a false gospel, then that is a false conversion. There's lots of people who have responded to some other gospel other than the biblical gospel, the prosperity gospel, the social gospel. Dear friends, there are no adjectives when it comes to the gospel. There's just the gospel. If you present a false Christ, if you present a false gospel, if you present a gospel that is easy believism, costs you nothing, that's a false gospel. Leads to the ruin of unbelievers. And the word there, ruin, in the Greek is the word catastrophe. And you know what that word means, don't you? You can tell by the way it sounds. Catastrophic. It's the same word, interestingly, used to describe the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Serious. 
It is also a danger to believers. Now, not in an eschatological sense, not in an eternal sense. If you are truly in union with the Lord Jesus Christ, you have surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God has saved you. He has regenerated you. He has washed you, justified you, sanctified you. You are sealed in Christ. But unsound doctrine poses a danger even to believers. How? Especially to young Christians. Young Christians who are new believers, they don't have a background of Bible knowledge. And unsound doctrine can lead, especially can lead young believers astray. It is possible for a young believer, an immature Christian, to get off into the weeds of someone like a Joel Osteen or a Joyce Meyer or someone like that. And that's a danger to them. Now, eventually, eventually God will bring them back. If when a genuine Christian strays from the Lord... And that does happen. That person can stray for a season, but not indefinitely. If you stray from the Lord, you belong to Christ, you know what he's going to do for you? He's going to put you right in the middle of Hebrews chapter 12. He's going to discipline you and he will bring you back. But nonetheless, false teaching does pose a danger even for the believer, especially for young believers. You see, false teachers never come showing up with... uh, advertising themselves as a false teacher. As I like to say sometimes, Satan doesn't show up red and scaly with a bifurcated tail carrying a hay fork. He's smarter than that. How does he disguise himself? As an angel of what? Light. Oh, he'll have some truth. The Roman Catholic Church has some truth, but mixed in with that truth, poison, error. Same thing with Word of Faith, New Epistolic Reformation, Roman Catholicism, antinomianism, all these various Christian Aberrant doctrines. Ungodliness, verse 16, bad doctrine yields bad fruit. Pretty simple. Bad teaching yields bad fruit. Bad teaching does not yield good fruit. And notice too, error, this this error, Paul says, spreads like gangrene in verse 18. Spreads like gangrene. Uh, The word there for gangrene is also used in ancient days, used for the same, used for uh, cancer. Error always begets more error. Error always begets more error. If you could, metaphorically speaking, raise John and Charles Wesley from the dead and let them look at the United Methodist Church today, they wouldn't recognize it. They'd be rolling over in their proverbial graves if they knew what was going on in the United Methodist Church today. United Methodist Church now all but openly accepting homosexuality, homosexual marriage. They didn't get there overnight. You know where it started? Of course, you could say with their more Arminian theology, but but where it really started, when they started to ordain women. When they started to ordain women, they put women in the same roles of spiritual authority and leadership in the church as men. That's a whole other (laughs) sermon. But that's where it started. Error begets more error. Now where are they? Ordaining homosexuals. Error always begets more error. Now, bringing this all and focusing now on the Roman Catholic Church. We've heard of the five solas. The five solas of the Reformation. Sola means alone. There are five solas of the Protestant Reformation. We'll look at each of these briefly. Sola gratia. Salvation is by grace alone. Sola fide, salvation is by faith 
alone. Solus Christus, salvation is in Christ alone. Soli Dea Gloria, salvation is for the glory of God alone. And Sola Scriptura, we know all of this by Scripture alone. Scripture alone is our authority. So let's look at these five solas and we'll see what the Roman Catholic Church, how they distort these solas. Now, I have some graphics here. On the left column, biblical Christianity. On the right column, Roman Catholicism. So let's begin with sola gratia. Salvation is by grace alone. The Bible is very clear. Salvation is of the Lord. Psalm 37. Salvation is of the Lord. Uh, Titus chapter 2 verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Salvation is of God. We refer to salvation sometimes as being a monergistic work. Mono, one. The Greek word erg means work. So one work. Salvation is the one work of the one God. Salvation is all of God. The Roman Catholic Church rejects this. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that salvation is not of God, it's of the church. And official Roman Catholic doctrine holds that if you are not a Roman Catholic, then you are outside of the grace of God. Biblical Christianity holds to what we call total depravity. Total depravity does not mean, as some erroneously believe, that men and women are as depraved as they could be. It does not mean that every man and woman out there is just looking for an opportunity to to, uh, drown a basket of puppies or something like that. It's not that we're as, as bad as we could be. Rather, total depravity is more aptly described as total inability. We are totally unable on our own to come to God. Our works are as filthy rags. We are enemies of God. We cannot do anything in and of ourselves to satisfy God's demand for holiness and justice. We do not even seek after God. Romans 3, 10 through 11. Paul says, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. None. The Roman Catholic Church, however, rejects total depravity. It rejects total inability. It says that man has something in and of himself that will cause him to seek after God. That is not true. The Bible rejects that. We love our sin. We love the darkness and we hate the light, right? We are enemies of God. The Roman Catholic Church rejects this. Biblical Christianity teaches that grace is unmerited favor bestowed by a sovereign God. That is what grace is. It is unmerited favor. We do not deserve it. We cannot work for it. We cannot earn it. It is un, the unmerited favor of God. Romans eleven six. Paul says, but if it is by grace, then it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. If you add works to grace, then it is no longer grace. By definition, it is no longer grace. The Roman Catholic Church rejects this. According to Roman Catholicism, grace is a thing. It's a force that is merited by works. Your works merit the grace of God. Well, Paul says very clearly, if that is the case, grace is no longer grace. The Roman Catholic Church rejects sola gratia grace alone. In fact, let me show you this from the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent was the Roman Catholic answer to the Protestant Reformation. 
Protestant Reformation kicked off in earnest, officially, if you will, in 1517, spread like wildfire. And so the Roman Catholic Church had basically had enough of it. And they said, what are we going to do? Well, let's hold a council and let's have our own answer to the Protestant Reformation. So they had the Council of Trent, long council, lasted from 1545 to 1563. A lot of refreshments to bring in for everybody in that council. But let me read this to you from Canon 12. Council of Trent, official Roman Catholic doctrine says this. If anyone saith, old language, but if anyone saith that the justification received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but hath but that the said works are merely the fruits and signs of a justification obtained, but not a cause of the increase thereof, let him be anathema. So in other words, the Roman Catholic church says that if you believe that is, that grace is completely unmerited, if you do nothing to earn it, if you do nothing to keep it, if you do nothing to increase it by your own works, that person is to be anathema. You know what anathema means? Damned. Damned. You are lost. You're not going to go to purgatory. You're going to die and you're going to go to hell if you believe that. Council of Trent. Let's look at sola fide, faith alone. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Biblical Christianity holds that we are justified by faith alone. Imputed righteousness. Roman Catholicism holds that we are justified by faith and works through the sacraments, infused righteousness. Now, don't go out and tell somebody, oh, Roman Catholics teach that you don't have to have faith, because that wouldn't be entirely true. Roman Catholics don't discount faith, they don't say that it's not important, they just say it's not sufficient. You've got to have faith and works. Now, the difference between imputed righteousness and infused righteousness, a difference as wide as eternity itself. What is imputed righteousness? Here's what the Bible teaches. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, the sins of God's people were imputed to him. He was treated as a sinner. He was counted as a sinner, even though he had done nothing wrong, the lamb without blemish. But our sins were imputed to his account. And when he died on the cross, he satisfied God's wrath. And his righteousness is imputed to our accounts when we turn from sins and place our trust in what he did on the cross. We have no righteousness on our own. We must have a righteousness that is alien to us, foreign to us. The righteousness of Christ must be imputed, counted to our credit, to our accounts. That is imputed righteousness. The Roman Catholic Church rejects that. They believe in infused righteousness. How do you get infused righteousness? You get it through works. You get it through the sacraments. Their sacraments are baptism, confirmation, penance, marriage, which Kathy and I were talking about this on the way down here. You know, Roman Catholicism forbids its priests and popes and cardinals and bishops to marry. Well, if that is one of the means by which you get righteousness, is the pope lacking in some of this righteousness? Guess he is. 
anointing the sick, holy orders, and the Eucharist. We'll talk more about the Eucharist in just a second. So this righteousness is infused into you in Roman Catholicism. It's not the righteousness of Christ credited to your account. It is infused into you through these sacraments, these seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. So when you have baptism as an infant, you get some, you get some it's like an IV, okay? It's like your, the Roman Catholic Church hooks you up to this IV through which you get, I guess, like a drip line of Jesus' righteousness into you through these seven sacraments of baptism, confirmation, Penance, marriage, anointing the sick, holy orders, and the Eucharist. The Bible rejects this. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. How much more clear could it be? Romans chapter 4, verse 5. It's been said that Romans 4, 5 is the cult 45 to Roman Catholicism. It's a good verse to know. Dear friends, a difference as wide as eternity between imputed righteousness and infused righteousness. Imputed righteousness saves. Infused righteousness is a farce. It does not exist. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone. We are dead in trespasses and sins. We are not spiritually sick. We're not in the spiritual ICU. We are tag on the toe, dead. God must make us alive by imputing the righteousness of Jesus Christ to us. Let's return to the Council of Trent, Canon 9. If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified, let him be anathema. If you believe that salvation is by grace alone, you're anathema. If you believe that salvation is by faith alone, by grace, through faith, you're anathema. You will go to hell. Canon 12. If anyone saith that justifying faith is nothing else. Now, watch this. If you say that justifying faith is nothing else but confidence in the divine mercy which remits sin for Christ's sake. Or that this confidence alone is whereby we are justified. Let him be anathema. And yet that's the definition of faith. That's what faith is. Faith absolutely is confidence in the divine mercy. And it remits sins for the sake of Christ. If you believe that, you're anathema. You will go to hell and you will burn for all of eternity. Solus Christus. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Biblical Christianity teaches that there is one mediator. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. One mediator. One. The Roman Catholic Church, however, teaches that there are many mediators. There is a plethora of mediators between God and man. You have the Pope. You have the bishops. You have the cardinals. You have the priests. All of these are mediators. Biblical Christianity teaches that there is but one Redeemer. 
Jesus Christ. Roman Catholicism holds that Mary is the co-redemptrix, co-redemptrix of Christ, with Christ. Co-redemptrix. Not only was she the mother of Christ, she is also our redeemer. Did you know, we hear a lot about Mary in the Roman Catholic Church. Of course, she is the, really the focal point of their worship. Now, if you go up to a Catholic church and you say, well, you worship Mary, you know what you're going to hear from them? I mean, to a Roman Catholic, not the church, but to a Roman Catholic. Well, you as Roman Catholics worship Mary. You know what they're going to say? No, we don't. No, we don't. We don't worship Mary. They'll, they'll be adamant. No, we don't. We don't worship Mary. Yes, they do. You've heard of the Immaculate Conception? A lot of people think that refers to the virgin conception of Christ. Nope. The Immaculate Conception in Roman Catholicism refers to the virgin conception of Mary. They believe Mary was born of a virgin. Why? Because, you see, she's the co-redemptrix. And we've got to preserve her sinless nature according to the Roman Catholic Church. So therefore, she was born of a virgin just like Jesus was. She was born without sin. Never mind that in Luke chapter 1, in what we call the Magnificat of Mary, never mind that she says, my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. If she was sinless, she wouldn't need a Savior. Mary understood she wasn't sinless. The Roman Catholic Church has done a huge disservice to Mary. Immaculate Conception. Also, the Catholic Church believes that Mary was sinless. She lived a sinless life. And guess what? Well, you may be wondering, well, if she was sinless and she lived a sinless life, why did she die? Oh, the Roman Catholic Church doesn't believe that Mary died. You know what the Roman Catholic Church teaches about Mary? Ascended into heaven just like Jesus. So they ascribe to Mary a sinless nature, a sinless life, no death, ascension up into heaven just like Jesus. Now you tell me they don't worship Mary. Yes, they do. They can tell you all day long till the cows come home that they don't worship Mary. Yes, they do. Because they ascribe to her deific qualities that belong to God alone, to Christ alone. But they reject Christ alone. Mary is up in heaven. She is our co-redemptrix. Oh, we don't pray to Mary. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Hail Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners. Yes, they do. Biblical Christianity teaches that there is but one sacrifice. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Once for all. The Roman Catholic Church rejects a single sacrifice by Christ. According to Roman Catholicism, Jesus Christ is sacrificed every single time they have Mass. Every time a Roman Catholic Church has Mass, they are sacrificing Jesus. They refer to the Mass as the sacrifice of the Mass. Why do they call it the sacrifice of the Mass? Because they believe that every time they have Mass, they are sacrificing Jesus Christ. Let me show you. 
Sacrifice of the Mass. This is from the Roman Catholic Catechism, paragraph 1367, if you'd like to look it up. Roman Catholic Catechism says this, The sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Holy Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim, now let me just pause there. That makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. The audacity that they would refer to Jesus Christ as a victim. Jesus never has been, is not now, nor will he ever be a victim. His life was not taken from him. He gave it. I have the authority to lay down my life. The authority to take it up again. He gave his life. He's no victim. He's the ultimate victor. This is a different Jesus. This is a different Jesus than the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus is no victim. But the victim is one and the same. The same now, referring to Christ, the victim, the same now offers through the ministry of the priests who then offered himself on the cross. Only the manner of offering is different. This sacrifice is truly propitiatory. Propitiation, that means the removal of God's wrath, the satisfaction of God's wrath. So they won't completely say that, well, the cross wasn't necessary. Yeah, it was necessary. But what he did on the cross, he does today through the priests. And the sacrifice of the mass is truly propitiatory. It satisfies God's wrath somehow, even though that's completely logically inconsistent with their belief of infused righteousness. Totally un. Completely illogical. The Roman Catholic Church, Roman Catholic theology is is, is illogical labyrinth of self-contradicting doctrines. It's nonsensical. So the only difference in what happened on the cross and what happens at a Catholic Mass is that the Catholic Mass is just bloodless. But it's a sacrifice. They are sacrificing Jesus over and over and over and over. When the priest takes the wafer, what they call the host, you know, the cracker. At mass, they, their doctrine of transubstantiation, they believe that that cracker literally turns into the actual flesh of Jesus Christ. Not symbolically, actual flesh of Jesus Christ. And the blood turns into his, the wine, excuse me, turns into his blood. Not symbolically, his real blood. The actual presence of his flesh and his blood in the mass. They believe that full deity is in the cracker and in the wine. And you might have heard of perpetual adoration. Have you heard this? Some of you former Roman Catholics, perpetual adoration. I don't think all Roman Catholic churches do this, but a lot of them do. The host, the the cracker, they put it in this gold what do you call it? I'm sure there's a word for it, but this mount thing. Is it chalice? Chalice, I think, is what you pour the wine in. Yeah, yeah, the, the gold cross thing with the holds the cracker in the middle in the center of the cross. They believe Jesus is in there. Now, this is going to sound sarcastic, and I'm sorry. I, I don't mean to be sarcastic. Maybe I do a little bit. But they believe Jesus is in there and they don't want to leave him alone. So they stay up with this thing and they worship it. They adore it. Perpetual adoration. 
365 until they eat it and then get a new one and they stay up with that thing. It's blasphemy. It's blasphemy. The Bible could not be more clear. For Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. By this, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. I do not know how the Bible could be more clear. Kathy and I read scripture together uh, every night that we're, we're home anyway, not on the road. And uh, when we're going through the book of Hebrews together, reading through that book, I just find myself, I'm reading through Hebrews. I'm thinking, what does the Roman Catholic Church do with the book of Hebrews? There is so much in there. What do they do with it? I mean, it, it, you see verses like this all throughout Hebrews. I don't know what they do with the book of Hebrews. Now, this is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1378. Worship of the Eucharist. Pause there for a second. Oh, we don't worship Mary. Yeah, you do. Oh, we don't, we don't worship. Yeah, you do. The worship of the Eucharist. The worship of the... They worship the cracker. In the liturgy of the Mass, we express our faith in the real presence of Christ under the species of bread and wine. It just looks like bread and wine. That's just, it just looks like it. Looks like it, feels like it, tastes like it, but it's not. It's the real flesh and blood of Jesus. Trust us, it is. The Catholic Church has always offered and still offers to the sacrament of the Eucharist, the cult of adoration. Their words, not mine. Isn't that interesting? Their words, the cult of adoration. It's their own catechism. The cult of adoration. Soli Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. Biblical Christianity teaches that God alone is due glory. However, the Roman Catholic Church holds that many are due glory. Not just God, but many. Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Again, how much more clear could it possibly be? God alone is due glory. But in the Roman Catholic Church, lots of people get glory. Lots of people get glory. Let me show you this. Interesting parallels between Roman pagan religions and Roman Catholicism. Walk through this a little bit with me. On the left column, Roman paganism. Pagan Roman religions. On the right column, Roman Catholicism. ISIS. Not the terror group, but... Before Isis was Isis. Isis, the Egyptian mother goddess religion. That's what it was. Egyptian mother goddess. They had this mother, this female goddess, of course. And uh, they believed that she was a mother. And they worshipped her. Her name was Isis. They referred to her as the queen of heaven and the mother of God. Compare that to Roman Catholicism. Mary is the Theotokos. 
In other words, the God-bearer. How do they refer to Mary? Queen of heaven, mother of God. Roman Catholicism is a baptized version of Roman paganism, this Egyptian pagan cult. And I want to pause here for a second and, and say this as well. I have noticed amongst some people who have been saved out of Roman Catholicism that they almost, because they've been saved out of such deception, and they rightly want to distance themselves as much as they can from that, rightly so, but there's a little bit of a residual. They almost have a bad taste in their mouth regarding Mary. We need to keep in mind, for all of you who are former Roman Catholics, keep in mind that Mary would be the first one to tell you that she does not approve of what the Roman Catholic Church has done to her. She'd be the first one to tell you. She would be the first one to tell you she's not sinless. She'd be the first one to tell you she did not remain a virgin. By the way, Jesus had brothers and sisters. Okay. Oh, they were, those, they were his cousins. No, they weren't. There's a different Greek word for cousins, and that's not the word used. He had brothers and sisters. So Mary was only a virgin up until Christ was born, and then he had other siblings the old-fashioned way. And Mary died. She'd be the first to tell you. She'd be the first one to object. Mithraism, another pagan religion. Mithraism had at its core the sacrificial meal. Sacrificial meal of eating flesh and drinking blood. And their god, little g of course, their god Mithras is the, the god of this particular cult. And Mithras was actually present in the meal. He was present in the meat and he was present in the, in the wine, in the, in the drinking of the blood. Not wine, but drinking blood. The Eucharist is the, is the baptized, to use that term, baptized version of Mithraism. Jesus is in the cracker, and he's in the wine. Mithras was in the meat, and he was in the blood. Jesus is in the cracker, and he's in the wine. It's a baptized version of Mithraism. Henotheism is the belief that there are many gods, but that only one was truly supreme. This is henotheism. And Roman Catholicism is, is in effect, a baptized version of henotheism. With Roman Catholicism, the Roman gods have been replaced with saints. The pantheon of Roman gods have been replaced with a pantheon of saints. And in Roman Catholicism, you have all these saints. In fact, in my research and preparing this message, I tried to come up with how many saints the Roman Catholic Church has. Do you know the Roman Catholic Church can't even tell you how many they've got? Best I can tell, somewhere northwards of 10,000 saints they don't even there's not even official count of how many there are thousands of them and they've got a saint for just about everything they got a saint for health they got a saint for money they got a saint for uh traveling they got a saint they they actually have and i i have this somewhere somewhere in our house boxed up i picked it up you can go in a roman catholic bookstore and we have is it saint who is saint joseph I think it's St. Joseph. Is that right, dear? St. Joseph, St. Somebody. But you can buy a, buy a little statue of St. I think it's St. Joseph. And he comes in a little green box. And what St. Joseph does, he's the saint of selling your house. So if, you, if you're trying to sell your house, 
go down to your local Catholic bookstore and pick up a little statue of St. Joseph, comes in a little green box, and you bury him in your front yard. And when you get St. Joseph down there in your front yard, he'll help you sell your house. It's paganism. Oh, we don't worship the saints. Yes, you do. Because they pray to the saints. They pray to Mary and they pray to the saints. Now, if you are praying, now think about it. There's 1.2 billion, give or take, Roman Catholics in the world, billion with a B. All these Roman Catholics praying to the saints. That's a lot of prayers to hear. The only way these saints could possibly hear all of these prayers, especially Mary, because she's getting most of the prayers, the only way Mary and all these patron saints could possibly hear all of these prayers and process them is if they are omniscient. Dear friends, when we die and go to heaven, we will have the mind of Christ, but we won't be omniscient. Only he is omniscient, the triune God. So they ascribe deific qualities, deific characteristics, divine attributes to Mary and to these, this pantheon of their saints. So they can tell you all day long, oh, we don't worship the saints. Yes, you do. Because you are ascribing to them qualities that belong only to God. Yes, you do. Roman emperors. The Roman emperors and Roman Empire. The city of Rome, of course, was the center of the Roman Empire. And their, the, their Roman emperor was referred to as the Pontifex Maximus. Pontifex Maximus. And he was revered as a god. Guess what one of the titles of the pope is? Pontifex Maximus. Roman Catholicism is a baptized version of Roman paganism. You see these parallels, and they're undeniable. They're undeniable. Papacy. Have you ever noticed some of the titles of their, the titles of their popes? They have three primary titles that they give to the pope. Now, Pontifex Maximus, that's kind of like the official Latin, but in more colloquial language, kind of everyday terminology, they refer to the pope in three ways. Holy Father, Holy Father, there's but one Holy Father. The head of the church, he's the head of the church. Who is the head of the church? Christ. And the vicar of Christ, the Pope is the vicar of Christ. Vicar means substitute. Who is the real substitute of Christ on earth? The Holy Spirit. What did Jesus say? It is to your advantage that I go away, right? Because the paraclete, the helper, will come, the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And they give all three of those names to the Pope. Oh, but Pope Francis, he's the humble Pope. He's humble. Because Pope Francis, he used to cook his own food. And Pope Francis, he's so humble because you know, he doesn't wear the, the papal red shoes that most popes wear. His shoes are just black. 
He doesn't wear the red. He could wear the red shoes, but he prefers to wear black shoes. He's very humble. Dear friends, if you think you are the Holy Father, the head of the church, and the vicar of Christ, you ain't humble. I don't care what color your shoes are. You're not humble. This is shocking. This is shocking. They reject salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I ain't even talked about purgatory. That's an affront to the cross. That's a denial of the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. According to Roman Catholicism, you die and you go to purgatory. And you spend who, who knows how many years in purgatory having all your other sins burned up, paid for, that Jesus somehow didn't pay for. They deny the sufficient sacrifice of his cross. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, recorded in the scriptures alone. And yet Roman Catholicism rejects this as well. Biblical Christianity, if you are a biblical Christian, your authority and my authority is the Bible. That's it. That's our authority, the Bible. Roman Catholicism rejects that. Roman Catholicism, oh, they'll take the Bible. They won't reject it. They'll, they'll take it out of context more often than not. But they're going to add some things to the Bible. You see, the Bible is not enough. The Bible is not enough for our authority. We're going to, we'll take the Bible. We'll take it out of context, but we'll take it. But we're also going to add some stuff to it. We're going to add to it the Apocrypha, these 11 books like First and Second Esdras, Tobit, Judith, First and Second Maccabees, uh, Baruch, the Prayer of Manasseh, these 11 books. We're going to add those to the Bible. And we're going to accept those as canon as well. Dear friends, there's a reason that the Apocryphal books were not accepted as true canon, not accepted as true scripture. They're riddled with historical inaccuracies, geographical even inaccuracies. Their theology does not measure up, for the most part, does not measure up to, to uh, biblical theology. There's a lot of errant, aberrant stuff. They're just, and, and also, you will not find Jesus, you will not find any of the apostles ever referring to the Apocrypha. They refer to the Old Testament books dozens of times, never to any of the apocryphal books. There's a reason the apocrypha was never accepted as scripture. There's not some grand conspiracy out there like people like to think. There's a reason these books were not accepted as scripture. So we're going to add the apocrypha. We're going to also add to that church tradition. And our tradition, our church tradition is just as authoritative as anything in the Bible. In fact, we're going to add church tradition. We're going to give it a notch above the Bible. That's really what's important is church tradition. We're going to add to that papal bulls. When the Pope speaks ex cathedra from the chair, when the Pope, speak, Pope speaks, he speaks with the same authority as scripture. And when the Pope speaks ex cathedra from the chair, whatever he says is inerrant, inerrant. Never mind that it just takes a cursory look at the history of the Roman Catholic church and you find these popes, and they are wildly contradictory to each other. Well, I thought they were infallible. I thought they were inerrant. How is it that they're contradicting to each other? Good question. Papal bulls and their councils. They got all these councils, Council of Trent, Council of this, Council of that, and Vatican II. Whatever the councils say, that's authoritative. We're going to take that as doctrine. 
We're going to take that as authoritative. And also visions and miracles. Our, our lady has appeared. Our lady, Mary, the lady, she's appearing to these kids in South America. Uh, the Lord's. Mary's appearing at Lord's and you're having miracles and people are getting visions and they're finding an image of Mary burned in their toast and, and all, this, all this stuff, these visions and miracles. It's not made up. Our statues are, are weeping. Statues of Mary's and, and the saints, they're, they're weeping. Some of them are bleeding. Sign of God's power. No, it's not. It's a sign of deception. Satanic deception. True test for scripture. Were the canonical books authored by an apostle or a close associate of the apostles? With all the New Testament books, you can answer with a resounding yes. You can't do that with the Apocrypha. Do they have sound doctrine? New Testament books, yes. Apocrypha, no. Were they regularly read and used in churches? All the New Testament books, yes. The Apocrypha, no. Paul cites Luke in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Paul cites Luke. Peter cites Paul in 2 Peter 3. Paul commanded his own letters to be read in the churches, 1 Thessalonians 5, Colossians chapter 4. You won't find this with any of the apocryphal books, nor will you find it with any of these Gnostic gospels, by the way, either, like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Mary. Not Roman Catholic in and of themselves, but they're Gnostic. Every year, the Discovery Channel, the History Channel comes out with this new theory, and they get it from these Gnostic writings. They were never considered to be Scripture for a reason. I want us briefly to look at some of the martyrs of the Roman Catholic Church. We don't know how many people the Roman Catholic Church has killed. There was the Inquisition. There was a formal Inquisition. There was an informal Inquisition. We don't know how many people were killed. Millions. Millions were killed. Millions of Christians were killed by the Roman Catholic Church. Just a few. John Huss. John Huss was a priest from Czechoslovakia. He challenged the Roman Catholic Church, challenged the Pope. He challenged indulgences. He, was, he came before Martin Luther. He was really the first reformer, the very first reformer. Now, Martin Luther, the, the Reformation got underway in earnest with him, but uh, John Huss really was the first reformer. He was arrested by the Roman Catholic Church, given multiple opportunities to recant of what they deemed as his heresies. Gave him multiple opportunities. Recant what you're preaching. Recant what you're preaching about salvation by grace alone through faith alone. He wouldn't do it. His last words were this. John Huss, as he was tied to the stake right before he was lit on fire, he said this. Lord Jesus, it is for thee that I patiently endure this cruel death. I pray thee to have mercy on my enemies. And they lit the fire. And it is said that as the fire began to consume him, he was reciting the Psalms. William Tyndale. You see the dates of his life there. What was William Tyndale's major crime? Translating the Bible into English. That was his crime. Translating the Bible into English so people could read it. 
That was worthy of death, according to the Roman Catholic Church. They tied him to a stake. They at least had the modicum of mercy. They strangled him before they burned his body. They strangled him to death, and then they burned him just for making the Bible available to the everyday man. Hugh Latimer. Let's see, is it coming up? There we go. Hugh Latimer. You see the dates of his life. He began as a Roman Catholic. Um, he was initially in his life, he was a fierce defender of Rome. He defended Rome. He defended the papacy as the uh, Reformation fires were starting to burn. He was, def- he was defending Rome against the reformers. But then he got saved. Then he got converted. In 1520, three years after the Reformation started, he got converted. He began preaching the true gospel. He was burned at the stake with a man named Nicholas Ridley. They were both tied to a stake simply for preaching the gospel. And his last words were this. He said to his friend who was about to die with him, he said this, play the man, Master Ridley. Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And it wasn't. When I try to put myself in the shoes of these men, and I wonder, would I be that brave? I'll be honest with you. In and of myself, I don't think I would. But you know, I think when it comes to examples like this, these men... I think when it comes to something like that, that God just gives these men and women who have been martyred as well. When it comes down to that point, I think God just gives them a special measure of his sufficient grace. And he enables them to die well. And it is, it is on the shoulders of these men that we stand. And we are grateful to God for them. They are but humble servants, but God used them in mighty ways. You look at the entire history of the Roman Catholic Church, and here's what you'll find. The entire history of the Roman Catholic Church is one of it doing its dead level best to keep the Word of God out of the hands of everyday people. It has fought tooth and nail to keep God's Word out of the hands of everyday people. That's all you need to know. That's a cult. That's a cult. A few years ago, I was preaching in Ecuador with a, a man who is named uh, Will Pounds. And Will, is, he's now in his, uh, oh gosh, he's probably in his upper 70s now. He's been a uh, missionary in Ecuador for almost his entire adult life, fluent, of course, in Spanish. And uh, I was preaching there, and he took me around. He wanted, to, he wanted to show me this little village that was kind of up in the mountains, show me a, a market that was there. And so I went with him. He drove me up in the mountains. And uh, he said, Justin, this is, 
This is old school Roman Catholicism here. Old school Roman Catholicism. He said, if you were to get out of the car right now and start preaching the gospel or handing out tracts, he said they would stone you. And he didn't mean that figuratively. He said they would stone you. They'll kill you. Roman Catholicism is a cult. In review, the five solas, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, is recorded in Scripture alone. Each of these, anath- each of these five solas, the Roman Catholic Church has anathematized. If you believe these things, you will die and you will go to hell. And dear friends, this remains official Roman Catholic doctrine to this very day. It has never been rescinded. Adopted in the Council of Trent, it has never been rescinded. Not only has it not been rescinded, it was affirmed in Vatican II, and it was affirmed in another council, the name of it escapes from here right now, in the 70s. In fact, one of their popes said, what was, is. We're not changing it, in other words. Vatican II. So what now? What now? I don't want you to come away from here, come away from this session and hate Roman Catholics. If that is your attitude when you leave here, then I've failed. We don't hate Roman Catholics. We love Roman Catholics. But we love them enough to tell them the truth. Don't hate Roman Catholics. Love them. But you love them enough to tell them the truth. But we do hate Roman Catholicism. We don't hate Roman Catholics, but we do hate Roman Catholicism. Why do we hate Roman Catholicism? We should hate Roman Catholicism just like we should hate any heresy, anything that is opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hate Roman Catholicism. Why? Because God hates it. Anything that is opposed to his gospel, we hate We love the things that God loves. We hate the things that God hates. And dear friends, the greatest act of love that we can do for our Roman Catholic friends and family members is to tell them the truth. Tell them the truth. We should love them enough to tell them the truth. And then we trust God for the results. Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation. For everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. God does save his own out of Roman Catholicism. But I want you to hear that. He saves his own out of Roman Catholicism. They don't stay there. Are there some Christians in the Roman Catholic Church? Let me give you a qualified yes. A very qualified yes. Now let me flesh this out. The the Christians who are in the Roman Catholic Church are saved not because of the Roman Catholic Church. They're saved in spite of the Roman Catholic Church. And the only genuine Christians that you would find there are very young Christians. They're new believers. They've come to faith in Christ, but they don't have their theological legs under them yet. They don't really know what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. But it goes back to what I was saying this morning in my earlier session. When the Holy Spirit of God saves us, he sanctifies us. 
The Holy Spirit of God indwells the new creature in Christ. He indwells that man. He indwells that woman. And he bears witness to the truth. And so a new believer, a very young new believer, may stay in the Roman Catholic Church for just a little while, but not for very long. A person may not be able to tell you all the differences between imputed and infused righteousness, and they may not be able to cite to you the councils and all their anathemas and all that stuff, but they'll be indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, and he will bear witness to the truth, and they're going to know something's not right. Something's not right. I've got to get out. And they do. They get out. They don't stay. Okay. Let's love them enough to tell them the truth. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the, your sufficiency, the sufficiency of your word for us. May it alone be our God. May we champion salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for your glory alone, and our authority is your word alone. May we continue to carry the torch that was passed to us by men like Calvin and Luther and Huss and Tyndale and all these men. Um, we thank you, Father. I pray for each and every one who is gathered here. May we be sanctified in the truth of your word. Carry your name well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.